This morning we're going to continue our series on the delights of God. This morning we're going to focus on His delight in His name. Over the last couple of weeks we looked at God's delight in His Son, how from eternity past the Father and Son have enjoyed each other's personalities, each other's beauty, each other's goodness, majesty, power. They uh, each reflect perfect beauty, perfect goodness, perfect love and how intensely enjoyable that has been for them throughout all eternity. Then this last week, uh, Ron taught us on God's delight in creation, how that love between the Father and Son overflowed, motivated them to express that delight in creating this universe, which we know, which we are a part of. So we've seen God's delight in His Son and His delight in creation. This morning we're going to look at his delight in his name. Now names are funny things, uh, some funnier than others. So last week I asked the staff uh, to tell me the most unfortunate names of anyone they knew. Now this had to be a, a real person, somebody they actually knew. Ron uh, knew a guy, or at least met a guy, whose name was Tyrone Shoes. Tyrone Shoes. His mother probably named him that. And uh, um, David Melhoff knows Rock Bottomley. <laughs> Nancy uh, Edwards had met a, a boy who's the youngest of a large family whose parents had actually named him Justin Other Bartley. Justin Other Bartley. <laughs> On our own staff, our own Pat Blewett has to put up with ribbing every time he makes a mistake. Somebody will say, Pat blew it. He goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, he's big enough to put up with that. And the biggest mistake that Pat and Jana almost ever made was they actually considered naming a male child Justin Casey. Justin Casey blew it. <laughs> Fortunately, they repented before Craig was born. But what's in a name anyway? You know, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, says Shakespeare, I guess, in Romeo and Juliet. But really, would it? If I called a rose a, a dinglehopper and didn't really tell you what that meant, and I said dinglehopper, would it bring the smell of a rose to your mind? You see, a name is intended to bring things to our minds, a variety of things about an object. For a rose, it might be the aroma or the color, the texture, the thorns, an anniversary, romance. You know, all of, of the memories and feelings and experiences associated with a rose. But if you had never experienced a rose, then all it could bring to your mind would be kind of a flat, two-dimensional description. A, a member of the genus Rosa with compound leaves, a prickly stem, and various colored flowers. You know, where's the joy in that? Where's the delight in that? A name is intended to bring a description to our mind, to communicate a description for something or someone we don't know. But for someone and something we know, it brings our experience and our relationship and everything about that thing or that person. Now, this can be greatly complicated if we've been lied to. If all of your life somebody handed you a blackberry vine and said, See, it's got a prickly stem, it's got compound leaves and a colored flower. This is a rose. 
You might believe them. And you might go through life thinking that was a rose and you could not understand why people were excited about roses. But it isn't a rose. It's just a plant that has some similarities. It is not specifically a rose. Names also communicate reputation. If Adolf Hitler, Genghis Khan, and Mother Teresa were standing on a street corner... Which would you go up to to borrow a quarter to make a phone call? Now, you don't know any of them, but you know their name. And that affects how you feel about them, how you would relate to them, what you would expect from them. Names also communicate relationship. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Frank Greer loaned me this book. It's called Stuka Pilot. It's about the, the most decorated German pilot in history during World War II. Now, I like World War II stories. I like uh, autobiographies, especially historic biographies. But I probably never would have picked that one up off of the shelf, except for one thing. It's written by Hans Ulrich Rudel. It's got the same name as I do. And I've never met anyone outside of my extended family. I've never even heard of anyone with the same name. You know, I may be related to this guy. And that possibility made that book fascinating to me. See, names do a lot of things. They communicate relationship, family. They, they um, communicate, they reveal character and attributes. They let us know specifically who or what we're dealing with. These are just some of the things that names do for us. And what we want to do this morning is to take a look at God's name, what it is, <coughs> excuse me, what it means, what it means to us, but especially what it means to him. In fact, that's where I want to start, is taking a look at what God's name means to him, how he feels about it. So last week I was at a conference, and during one of the morning sessions, the speaker was going through the Lord's Prayer. The very first week, or first day, he said, read the first two verses. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he said, the very first thing that Jesus wants us to pray for and to desire with all our hearts is that God's kingdom come and His will be done. And I wanted to jump up and say, no, wait a minute, that's number two. That's the second thing. He skipped verse one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The very first thing that Jesus wants us to pray and to desire is that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be respected, that it would be valued, that it would be looked on with, with, with desire, attractive, cherished, honored, revered, esteemed. See, and this is a theme all of the way through Scripture. This seems to be a priority of both Jesus and the Father. In the Old Testament, the single event that all of the writers of the Old Testament look back on as the pivotal event of history, the key event of all of human history, is the exodus from Egypt when God delivered His people from Egypt. But why did God do that? Was it because these were such neat people? Because they were so loyal to to Him? Because He saw such potential in them? Psalm 106 tells us, verse 7 and 8, When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your works. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's 
sake. To make His mighty power known. Did you ever wonder why God did it the way He did it? I mean, why He used ten plagues when He could have used one real good one and just wiped them out? Why did He use ten? Why did He prolong it? Why was He so dramatic? Well, He tells us in Exodus 9. He explains. And Paul uh, mentions this in Romans 9. But let me read from Exodus 9. Verses 15 and 16. God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses and He says, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God did it in this dramatic fashion because He wanted Pharaoh and He wanted Israel and He wanted all the people in the world to hear of His name. It's also why He gave them rest in the promised land. In Isaiah 63, 14, like cattle that go down into the pasture, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make a glorious name for yourself. It's also why God was so patient and enduring with this people throughout their history, even though they were constantly bickering, constantly disloyal, constantly rebelling. First Samuel twelve twenty two for the excuse me for the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people. See, we like to think that it's because He sees something in us. That, 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 that somehow because we've been loyal to Him, we've been faithful, that, that He acts on the behalf of man. But that is never the case. It is always motivated out of His delight in and His commitment to His name. The last great event of the Old Testament was taking the people out of exile in Babylon. Again, why did he do it? Because they were so deserving? Because they were such a great people? Let me just read from Ezekiel 36. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. You see, it most definitely was not because they were a great people. But it was God's great commitment to His name. We see this continue on in the New Testament. Jesus says He came in the Father's name. He came to make the Father's name known. He came to glorify the Father's name. When Jesus was struggling with the pain of of going to the cross, and, and He was really hurting and struggling with that, finally on His knees He said to the Father, For this reason I have come to this hour. Glorify your name. And that was Jesus' motive, even in going to the cross. I want to come back to the New Testament in a future week, so I don't want to look up a lot of the passages, but the New Testament is full of of magnifying and exalting the name, the name of the Lord. The main point I want to make 
just to start off with is to give you a glimpse, a feel for how important God's name is to him. It's a constant theme of Scripture. It motivates everything he's done in Scripture. And in fact, about 500 times, a little over 500 times in Scripture, we are called to praise the name of God or to magnify the name of God or to sing to the name of God, to glorify the name of God. This is a constant theme and a clear priority. Now, there are all kinds of ways we could go about looking at the name of God in Scripture. We could look at all of His names. If we had about six months, go through and look at them all. Or we could look at any of a couple of dozen psalms that that call us to praise His name and give us dozens of reasons to praise His name and, and, and a variety of different ways to magnify and glorify His name. But what I want to do this morning is look at one little verse. Isaiah 43, 3. Go ahead and turn there. By looking at this one little verse, I want to try to catch a glimpse for why God loves His name, why He is so delighted with His name and so committed to His name. So let's look at this one little verse. In fact, I don't even want to use the whole verse, just the first half of the verse. Isaiah 43, 3. It says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, I want to look at each of those names, name by name, <clears throat> and explore a little bit. He starts off by giving his proper name, the name that he chose to reveal himself to Moses by. This is the name of God. He says, I am Yahweh. And most of you who have your Bibles open say, no, it doesn't. It says, I am the Lord. Where does he get that it says, I am Yahweh? Well, look closely at the word Lord. It's in all capital letters. Every time you see Lord written out in capital letters, you can translate to the name of God, Yahweh. Because that's really the word behind it. Well, why don't they just write the name of the Lord? Why don't they just write Yahweh there? Well, the modern uh, translators follow ancient custom. The, the Hebrew and the Jewish scribes would never write out the name of the Lord for fear that somebody would just read it casually and pronounce it and take the name of the Lord in vain. And they would have had a part in that by writing it down. So they refused to write down the name of the Lord. Instead, what they did was they wrote the consonants for the name of the Lord, what we call the tetragram, because there are four consonants. In English, it would be Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, it's yod heh vav heh They took these four consonants, and then they put the vowels from Adonai, which is the word Lord in Hebrew. So they got the right consonants with the wrong vowels. That way, if anybody read it, they'd mispronounce it, and they wouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. And actually, that's where we get the word Jehovah, that is a mispronunciation. That is the English pronounce, pronunciation of those consonants with the wrong vowels stuck in. But a, our modern translators, whether for that same respect and reverence for the name, or out of disrespect for this tradition, also do not write out the name of the Lord. They write LORD, all capital letters, to distinguish it from Adonai, LORD, small case letters. So whenever you see LORD, capital letters, you're reading the name of God, Yahweh. That's how it's pronounced. That is His name. Well, 
the name of God, the proper name of God, is Yahweh. What does that mean? Well, it means I am. God says, I am, I am. Now, why did he choose that for a name for himself, for his proper name? Well, because that's the first thing we need to know about him. He is. He exists. He has always existed. In fact, everything else that exists, exists only because he created it. He is what theologians call the ground of all existence. Because nothing that exists could possibly exist apart from him. But you see, he is not just the ground of all existence in some metaphysical, abstract sense. He is, he exists, but it's more than that. He is all that we need. When God was talking to Moses, Moses was saying, who should, who should I say sent me? The reason Moses was asking that was because he was afraid. He was very insecure. He knew his inadequacy. He knew all the trouble he was going to get into and he didn't know what he was going to do about it. He was not only looking for a name from God, he was looking for some assurance from God. And the name that God gave him was not just a proper name so he could pass it on to the people he talked to. But that name itself was the assurance. The assurance that he would always be there. I am. I am there for you. And I will be there. I am. I am all that you need. I am. I'm able to provide what each circumstance will require, no matter what the circumstance, no matter how outnumbered you are, no matter how desperate it feels, no matter what happens in your life. I am able to give you what you need. I am for you. I care about what you're going through, about what you're feeling, about your experience. You see, I am is not just his name, it's his commitment. It's his character. It's the way he is, the way he wants to be for us. He is, he exists, but he is also all that we need, all that our hearts long for. And that immediately distinguishes him from other gods. You see, he exists. They don't. Or if they do, they're just created beings who are just trying to steal a little of his glory. They promise to be all that we need. They promise to provide everything we need. But they aren't, so they can't. In uh, Isaiah 42, God says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. He won't do it because they can't. They can't provide all that we need. They can't be what we need. They cannot meet our deepest longing, what we were created for. They're counterfeit gods. In Isaiah's day, they had names like Marduk and Dagon and Isis and, and maybe even Baal and, and Asherah. But today they come in a variety of disguises. They usually don't give their name. They usually don't even let on that they're trying to be gods. But they demand our worship, our focus, our priority, our attention. They come in things like selfishness and self-promotion. They come in materialism. They come in sexual lust or in lust for comfort and for ease. They come in pride and independence. And they promise to give us everything we need, to be all that we need. They promise to give us satisfaction and rest. They promise to give us joy. They promise to give us freedom. 
They promise to make us healthy and give us functional families. They promise a life and a future. But they aren't. So they can't. They aren't the wellspring of all life and joy. They aren't the one who is able. They aren't the one who really cares. They aren't. So they can't. Only Yahweh, only the great I Am is worthy of that devotion. All of the commitment we give to these other gods, all of the attention we pay, all the time we spend focused on them is wasted. Only the great I Am is worthy of that glory, of that attention, of that importance in our lives. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. And next he calls himself your God. Now that doesn't sound so much like a name as it does a description, but it serves as a name. And if you were to ask a young child what the name of the woman standing next to him is, he would probably tell you, Mommy. I mean, she may have a name like Connie or Betty or Francis or something like that, but as far as he's concerned, that's Mommy. A friend of mine told me of a, a time a while back, where her son, when he was real small, got separated from her in a large department store. He became frightened, and so he started to shout out, Mommy! Mommy! Several women came over to him, concerned, wanting to comfort him and help him. He realized he was miscommunicating here. So he started shouting, My Mommy! My Mommy! He didn't want just any Mommy. He wanted his Mommy. A God isn't just any God. He is our God. He's your God. And that little boy knew his mommy loved him. She had proven that over the years. She had fed him and diapered him and comforted him and disciplined him. She, he knew she loved him. And that's what he wanted, that relationship. But God is our God. And He's been all those things for us, whether we realize it or not. Do you ever notice how God throughout Scripture, often refers to himself by his relationship with someone. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob, the God of David. See, this is, be- this is so that, that those of us who are just getting to know him will know what he's like and know how to relate to him. See, we look at the way he related to these men in Scripture and these women in Scripture. We see the way he was there for them, the way he cared for them, the way he provided for them, the things he said to them, what he asked of them, what he wanted from them. And by watching that, we learn what he's like and how we relate to him. But it's absolutely essential that he not stay just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he be your God that you move into a personal relationship with Him. That you begin to explore yourself and to experience who He is for yourself. It's great to share among ourselves how we're learning about God, how we're getting to know Him better. But you can't live off others' experience. You've got to experience Him yourself and get to know Him yourself. Let Him provide and to be all that you need. Psalm 20, verse uh, 1. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
and He be your God as well. Well, so now we have seen the reality in the name Yahweh, the relationship in the name your God. In the last two names, we see the revelation of His character and His chief characteristics. The first of those is the Holy One of Israel. This is the God of Scripture. And in Scripture, He's revealed Himself to be holy. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word in its most basic sense just means to be special, to be separate, to be different. So in its basic meaning, it means that God's different, different than we are. He's more intelligent, He's more powerful, He's more aware, He is just more than we are. And He's different than the gods of the people around us, just as He was different than the gods of the people around Israel. But that difference was not just in his power and his ability and and his wisdom. The difference that Scripture emphasizes is that he was morally different than the gods of the people around Israel. He's morally different. This was revolutionary. You see, the gods of the people around Israel were either amoral, that is, they had no morals, or they were immoral. They encouraged drunkenness and drug abuse as as means to come to spiritual knowledge. Many of them encouraged all kinds of of sexual perversion as part of their worship. The worship of some of these gods involved cult prostitution and male prostitution and bestiality. These gods didn't particularly care how you related to other people. They had certain rules that they handed down so that society could run smoothly. But kindness was not a premium. As long as you didn't disobey any laws, how you treated them didn't really matter. It weren't concerned with how you treat people. But you see, the true God has revealed that He is very different than that. He has revealed that He cares very much how people are treated, especially those who are... are are unable to defend themselves, the weak and the powerless. He cares very much the impact on families of drunkenness and drug abuse. He cares very much what happens in in, in society and in in individuals' personalities when, when, when sexual perversion and other kinds of addictive and destructive behavior take root and, and begin to dominate. He cares very much. See, the people around us, I think, are going back to these other gods, these amoral and immoral gods who don't care as long as uh, the, the way you treat people. They have no moral opinion. Gallup poll in 1990 said that 94% of Americans believe in God. But who is the God they believe in? Do they believe in the Holy One of Israel? Or do they believe in some higher power? some uh, impersonal force, a uh, kind of a cosmic grandpa? Do they believe in a God who chuckles to himself and says, well, boys will be boys? Or do they believe in a God who seethes at the abuse of women and children? Do they believe in a God who uh, basically doesn't care? As long as you obey the laws, you're okay. Do they believe in a God who has commanded that we love like He loves? Do they believe in a God 
who encourages us to indulge in whatever sexual urges and and desires we have as an expression of our true identity? Or do they believe in a God who demands that we bring our sexual drive in submission to Him or it will consume us? Do they believe in a God that realizes that business is business? Or do they believe in a God who takes up the cause of those who are taken advantage of, of the widows and the orphans and those who can't defend themselves. You see, many people believe in something called God, but it isn't specifically Yahweh. They aren't in relationship with the Holy One of Israel. Well, the final name in our verse in Isaiah 43 that God gives to Himself is your Savior. You see, Holy One of Israel reveals and communicates His character. He is holy. He is good. He cares very much the effect of sin and He will not tolerate it. That's His character. But His chief characteristic is Savior. He not only is intolerant of sin, but He's willing to save us from sin to deliver us from its control and its power in our lives, from its effect, from its guilt. See, that's his chief characteristic. That's what he likes to do. He likes to save. Why did he take his people out of Egypt during the Exodus? To make a name for himself. And what was the name? Savior. The one who could take this weak and helpless people and deliver them from the most powerful government, the most powerful army in the world. And as that name, Savior, went out, people from all over the world began to join themselves to Israel. It's the, the, the population of the, the followers of God swelled to most estimate over 2 million people there in the desert. Guys like Caleb, who was one of the mighty warriors who was so instrumental in taking the promised land. He was not an Israelite. He heard the name of the Savior and he came and he joined himself to this God who was able to save and to these people. Rahab, the great-great-grandmother of David, she was not an Israelite, but when the spies came into Jericho, she protected them and she hid them because she had heard of the name of the God who was able to save. And in Joshua 2, verse 11, she says, Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven and on the earth. See, she joined herself to the people of this God who was able to save and to this God who was able to save her. Why did uh, God give rest to the people in the land once they had come into the promised land? To make a name for Himself. Well, what was that name? Savior. The God who could deliver His people from all of the powerful nations around them. You see, these people were, were instructed not to have a mechanized infantry. They weren't allowed to have horses or anything like that. They were to depend on God. And all of these powerful nations around them would be unable to harm them. And that was what existed in David's day. God protected them and people came to see this phenomena. A God who was able to save. And they came to the temple there and saw the glory of His name and began to glorify, magnify that name of Savior. Again, why did God deliver His people out of the exile in Babylon? To make a name for Himself. And what was that name? Savior. The one who could pull His people back from oblivion and reestablish them in the land so the people from all over the world would again come. They would hear of what God had done, the name He had made for Himself, the name of Savior. 
See, God delights in His name because His name stands for, communicates, manifests all that's true about Him. His name reveals His character and His majesty, His beauty, His strength, His power, His wisdom. But most of all, His loving kindness, His compassion, His tender mercies. Because He is the Savior. And as we see that name and the glory of that name and are drawn toward it and begin to delight in it because it's life for us, it's our hope. We hope in that name, Savior. And we begin to rejoice in that name and rejoice in Him. Psalm 511, spread your protection over those that love your name so that they may rejoice in you. See, to rejoice in His name ultimately is to rejoice in Him. To love His name is to love Him and all that He has revealed Himself to be. Psalm 9, verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then in verse 10, Those who know your name will trust in you, Yahweh, for you have never forsaken those who seek you. If you really know His name, then you know what He's like. You know His character. You know His faithfulness, His compassion, His mercies. If you really know His name, then you'll trust Him completely because you know that He has never forsaken anyone who has turned to Him. If you really know His name, then you know that ultimately and finally, the name that He has chosen for Himself, the name above every other name, is Savior. Because the final, the last name that He has chosen for Himself is Jesus. And that means Savior. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has gathered the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. I know. His name is Yahweh, the great I Am. His name is your God who loves you. His name is the Holy One of Israel. And His name is Savior. And so is His Son's name. For His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise Your name. We lift it up. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we exalt in Your greatness. In your name, Yahweh, that you are, you exist, you've created all. We exalt that you are our God, that you've chosen to name yourself as our God. We want to honor that, to value that love. We praise you because you are holy, because you care very much about the impact on our lives of sin, the destruction of our society, the destruction of your creation. But most of all, and finally, God, we praise you because you are Savior. We, we hope in that. 
We ask you to continue to build a name for yourself by being merciful to us, not because we deserve it, but because of your great name. We ask you to exalt that name, the name of Jesus. Exalt that name above every other name. Lord, we delight in your name. We want to share a little of the excitement that you have about your name because we know that your name stands for all that's true about you and that it communicates your goodness to those who have never heard the name. Just ask that you magnify yourself in us. We pray this in that name. Amen.